I realized a while ago that one of the idols in my life is competence, appearing competent. Um, I think this is probably something true of especially men in general, but, but I think we as human beings hate to appear needy. I think there's something in us that loves being self-sufficient and competent, good at what we're doing, and having arrived in some really significant ways. And it's so important, though, for us to realize that the word needy is not only not something to avoid, but something to embrace as true of what it means to be human beings. Before God, we are desperately needy, needy for Him to exist, needy for Him to provide our daily bread in every breath and every heartbeat. We are utterly, absolutely needy before God. And it may be something easier for you to acknowledge, oh yes, before God, but then to realize that the way God meets our needs is through human means, earthly provision through people coming alongside us and providing for us. And that's why we're here this morning. I hope you realize that your presence here at least ideally, should be because you recognize your neediness. You recognize that staying home by yourself, staying home isolated from others, is not good for you because you need other people. You need God to care for you in the fellowship of the saints. You need what He provides for you. We are all needy people. Something in me just doesn't like that. I don't know about you, but it's so important to realize that neediness is at the core of who we are. And before a holy God, as sinful people, that neediness, well beyond just being finite, accelerates massively to the point where the Bible describes us as desperate and helpless and hopeless apart from God's provision. Yet we all gather here this morning looking so good. <laughs> looking not at all. I mean, I look at all of you and none of you look destitute. None. You look beautiful. Goodness. You look so together. You look so all there, right? Oh, thank you. <laughs> Tell me your name. Nally. Thank you, Nally. Nelly, thank you, Nally. I really appreciate that. I do. It's good to have two directional affirmation. That's good. Uh, but, but looking good could actually be a deceiving thing. We, we need to realize that as we walk in here, even though we're looking good and we pull in and our, our lives seem fairly together, many of us, we are needy people. It can be hard for people in our context in our culture especially to realize our neediness if if you're in prison if you're in rehab if you're living on the streets if you have no idea where your next meal is going to come from it's a little easier to recognize your neediness 
But we spend a lot of our lives trying to feel and appear like we don't have needs. Well, this morning we are going to see a picture of a man who couldn't be more obviously needy. It's in Luke chapter 8, and if you'd open your Bibles to Luke chapter 8, we're going to look at a man that I hope, I hope and pray every one of us can relate to, even though his example of neediness is extreme to be sure, I pray, I have been praying that not one of us would see him in a different fundamental category than every one of us is in. Luke chapter 8, we have another example of Jesus moving right toward the darkness. Kenny said that Jesus is the supreme funeral crasher. That's what he does. He moves into funerals, and he moves into storms. And this morning, we'll see Jesus move into a graveyard in a terrifying, desperate situation. Lord, help us as we go to your word. Indeed, please, open the eyes of our hearts, and help us to see what you have for us about you and about ourselves, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 8, beginning at verse 26. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land... There met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time, he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds, and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons have entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. When the people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed, And in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen, those who had seen it told them how the demon possessed man had been healed. 
Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Wow, what a story. You know, I would love, I would love to hear what struck you as of particular importance as we read through that story. Does anybody want to volunteer what, what was especially important to you? Isn't that beautiful? He acknowledges Jesus as God. He, he tells him to go out and tell people what Jesus has done. And that's what he does. It's exactly what he does. Remind me of your name again. Albert. Thank you, Albert. Beautiful. What else? They're, yeah, the people. That's right. And not a good fear. Not a fear that exalts Jesus and draws you to Jesus as healthy, holy fear does, but a bad one that rejects Jesus, tells him, get out of here. Yeah, they're afraid. Fascinating response. Yeah, what else, Doug? Yeah, the demons recognize the authority of Jesus apparently more than the other people do, maybe even than the disciples do. The demons have accurate knowledge of who Jesus is and the authority he has. They're afraid of him too, but again, not a fear that draws them to him. Yeah, who else? Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. He, he has a kind of mercy on the demons. They don't want it all to end right now. They know what their future holds. And they're just saying, not, not yet. Don't, don't finish us off yet, okay? That's exactly right. So he prolongs their final judgment. Good. He has a kind of patience even in that moment with them. Good. Yes, sir. Yeah, demons are real. Yeah. That's right. They're real and they bow down to Jesus' authority. Beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, he was willing to kill an entire herd of pigs the same one life. Now, I love animals. I do. But this is significant. Why, why do you highlight that, Junior? <laughs> right. So, so obviously, Jesus loves his creation. You know, I just preached on Jonah at... Um, I preached on Jonah at Hume SoCal at their winter camp for high school kids. And it, it, you, know, you know the last verse of the book of Jonah? And also many cattle. That's the last verse of Jonah. What? Really? You can't finish that off a little bit better? Yeah, so animals are significant to God. I mean, he's saying at least Jonah could care about the Ninevites because there are cattle there. So it's not that God doesn't care about his creation or animals, but there's a perspective a proportional concern about the soul of one man relative to those those animals oh. 
<laughs> yeah, not that big of a jewel, big of a deal for a Jew to kill pigs. Yes, um, that's interesting. We could unpack that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It 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 hits their economy exactly. It, it's not an incidental thing, and it's a representation of what the co- the old covenant considers an unclean thing which is significant that Jesus walks into that uncleanliness, but then in his casting out of the demons actually purges the uncleanliness symbol that's there from an old covenant perspective. Yeah, very interesting, Luke, yeah. Yes, so he's in an unclean graveyard. He's in a Gentile territory, another level of uncleanliness, and then there are pigs. Clearly, Jesus is walking right in to the uncleanliness of our world in this, this scene. Yeah, beautiful. Okay. What do we need to make sure we get out of this? Those, those are beautiful observations. I would love to do this all day, actually. But, but I have a sermon to preach. You ready? Uh, the first thing we need to realize is, is what's already been mentioned. Demons are real. The spiritual realm is real. Powers of darkness are real, as real as the physical realm. And in some ways, the Bible teaches that the spiritual realm has a foundational reality for our lives that we have got to recognize. And what we see in Jesus engaging the spiritual realm, especially when he engages the, spirit, the, the, the spiritual powers of darkness, as we see here, is that the spiritual realm is real, the powers of darkness in that spiritual realm are real, and Jesus is engaging those powers of darkness because he is setting about to do what he said he came to do, which is what in Luke 4? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And in this scene, Jesus is doing what he said he came to do, set at liberty those who are oppressed. This man is deeply oppressed by demonic forces and realities and demons themselves, and Jesus sets him free. Jesus is taking back his creation. He's reasserting his authority in his world that he created that has been taken over by the powers of darkness. And Jesus even then transfers this to his disciples, as we'll see in a couple chapters from here in Luke 10, when the disciples come back to him with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. He transfers his authority to his followers to cast out these powers of darkness. And they say, and Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this. Look, Jesus says, that's important. That's a symbol. That's an image of me taking back my creation. And that's powerful and that's necessary for people to see what I've come to do. But that's not the most important thing, Jesus says. The most important thing is what? He says, don't rejoice in this. Rejoice 
that your names are written in heaven. Rejoice that you're forgiven. Rejoice that my work will lead you to a restored relationship with God himself. Rejoice in what I will accomplish on your behalf. Yes, vanquishing the powers of darkness, but fundamentally restoring sinful and needy and lost people into a relationship with their creator. And so this demonic engagement, this warfare we see is a vital picture of what Jesus came to do, but ultimately he came to preach good news to the poor and he came to restore us into a relationship with God that necessarily involves vanquishing the powers of darkness. But fundamentally, the gospel, the good news of Jesus in our place is the focus of all of it. Paul recognized the miraculous as an extension of Jesus' ministry through the apostolic ministry. He says signs and wonders and miracles are signs of true apostolic ministry. We need to realize the spiritual realm is real, powers of darkness are real, and this has always been our foundational battlefield. Oh, there are wars, as we don't need to be reminded, raging in this world, and there always have been. Since Cain and Abel, there are real flesh and blood enemies in this world. But underneath it all, is a spiritual realm we've got to realize. Ephesians 6.12. Our struggle, a relative statement, is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of the, this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. He says that's where our fundamental battle takes place, which means our weapons of warfare, as Melissa was saying, have got to be Weapons of warfare to engage spiritual warfare, which is prayer, which is righteous living, which is the, the gospel of peace, which is the word of God. When we gather like this and engage in the fellowship of the saints and the preaching of the word and the corporate worship we've been engaging in and prayer, this is warfare. This is warfare that will advance our souls individually and collectively in this battle. It couldn't be more serious. It's just amazing that we could ever view the means of grace, the weapons of warfare, as things we do apathetically or half-heartedly. It's like running in a battle with no weapons, no armament, no protection. It couldn't be more serious when we gather, when we worship, when we devote ourselves to the scriptures, when we sing corporately. I think Satan hates what we're doing right now. I think he despised every song we just were singing together. I think he hates it. I think it's like a stench to him that's repulsive. And I think a fortress develops because of that around times like this. I think it incites even more opposition from him. But I also think at the same time, there's a protection that comes with the gathered people of God in whom the Spirit dwells, focusing on God and his word and engaging in warfare. I know it doesn't feel like warfare, but it is. Worship is warfare. Word is warfare. Prayer is warfare. Fellowship 
serving, giving. When we gave just now to the ministry of Christ's exaltation through the ministry of this church, Satan hates that. That's advancing Christ's kingdom. We're in a war, and we've, we've got to engage this war. We need to wake up in the morning, not just with our list of things to do in our minds that dominate everything, but with a realization that we wake up not just as children of God in his family, but soldiers of God in his army. Every day you wake up, and you're a soldier. And we are to advance depending on the things we devote ourselves to as God's people. And, and so the spiritual realm is real. The spiritual realm has a dark, demonic aspect to it. And we've got to engage it the way God calls us to. And we need to realize that you can't have the power you need without the person you need. You can't have power in the spiritual realm without the person of Christ. It's His authority. As one of you pointed out, it's his authority that gives us the ability to overcome in this war. You can't have the power without the person. And it's interesting, in my lifetime as a Christian, I, I mostly, with non-Christians, would come up against sort of what we call a naturalistic worldview that didn't acknowledge a spiritual realm. But it's amazing, I think because of the influence of Eastern religions and the New Age movement, that spirituality and the spiritual realm tends to be now acknowledged by most people. Most people aren't going to give you a lot of pushback. I actually don't meet a lot of people who think all there is is flesh and bone and material things. Most people are willing to say and even say, oh yes, I'm a very spiritual person. But I, I notice a lot of times that intentionally stays very vague, very undefined, very abstract. Now, why would that be? Because the more defined it is, especially if it's defined by the person of Christ. Now, I don't get to be my own God because he's God. And I answer to him. And I fight on his authority, not mine. And it's not about me. It's about him and my life becomes something that is subsumed under his life and his authority. And it's no longer I live, but him who lives in me. And so it's about Jesus first and foremost and foundationally and not about myself. And so I want spirituality. I want some sort of power because apart from that, I feel pretty weak and helpless and lonely in this world. And so it's important that we recognize the spiritual realm, but that we recognize the spiritual realm is something Jesus rules and reigns over. And it's important to realize, as one of you beautifully pointed out, that knowledge isn't enough. D Doug pointed this out, that the demons actually have a very accurate view of who Jesus is. They call him the God of the... the here it is. You're Jesus, Son of the Most High God. In verse 28, Son of the Most High God. That, that is a pretty... Gentile way to refer to the Messiah, but it's, it's what they recognize to be true, and they're exactly right. They recognize who he is, and they recognize his authority, which shows us knowledge isn't enough. You can know all the right answers intellectually, but if that knowledge doesn't lead you to worship of Christ and obedience to Jesus, and devotion to Christ. 
then it can actually be the same kind of belief demons have. Do you know demons are monotheists? They believe there's only one God. That's what James tells us. James says the demons believe there's one God and shudder. They have a kind of fear, but not a fear that leads them to worship of Jesus, but further rejection. Right knowledge isn't sufficient. That knowledge needs to transform our hearts into hearts of worship. And so knowing the truth is, has never been enough. It needs to be more than that. We can actually have right knowledge that's like demonic knowledge. The possessed have a knowledge of Jesus. And we've seen this in Luke several times. Just a couple examples. Luke 4, verse 34. Uh, what do we have to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? The demons say. Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. That's perfect theology. That's perfect truth. But it leads to further rebellion. Listen again in Luke 4. The demons also were coming out of many, crying out and saying, You are the Son of God. And rebuking them, He would not allow them to speak because they knew Him to be the Christ. Isn't that amazing? You can have knowledge that's completely accurate, but not transformative. I think a lot of people think they're doing just fine because they know right answers. They can give you lots of right answers, and, and they love to, to even demonstrate the knowledge they have of religious things. But if that knowledge isn't leading to transformed hearts that are humble and worshipful and devoted to Christ, it's actually the kind of knowledge demons have. Now, I want you to realize the hardest thing about this passage is to see this man in this desperate situation, naked, homeless, living in a graveyard, and don't think a light, a nice organized graveyard like we have over on La Mirada Boulevard um, with flowers and balloons and nicely manicured lawns. Uh, this, this graveyard at this time and this location would have been a pretty grotesque place. Caves and carved out areas where, where bodies are put, and it's not some nice place to visit. There aren't all of these regulations about burial. I mean, it, it, it's a, a grotesque place. And Jesus moves into this area of unclean Gentiles with unclean pigs into a graveyard. You know, um, Jesus is, is going to come from the east, right? Where the, where the sun rises. The Messiah is returning from the east. I've been to the eastern gate in Jerusalem around the city of Zion. And it's a Muslim-controlled area. And do you know what the Muslims have done? They've not only walled off the eastern gate that the Messiah is said to enter into when he returns, but you know what they did? They put a graveyard right in front of it. There's a graveyard right in front of the eastern gate in the wall of Jerusalem. But here we see that's not going to put Jesus off. That, that, that won't keep him from returning just in the way he said he will. J Jesus isn't afraid to walk into graveyards. Jesus isn't intimidated by darkness because he has the power and the authority to overcome it. 
And so we see Jesus in action here, moving toward this man in this desperate situation, living among pigs in a graveyard, in Gentile territory, as a Gentile, and Jesus moves toward this unclean, alienated man who is a walking dead man. No doubt his body is physically terribly scarred and marred. He has broken chains and shackles through this spiritual power. That, doesn't, uh, that, that kind of strength doesn't prevent your body from bearing the scars and the wounds of that kind of activity. And I, worked, I was a dean of students at a school for uh, at-risk youth. It was the last stop before prison. If, if you didn't get it done at the school where I was the dean of students, you were going to prison. This was your last chance as a high school kid. And, it, man, I got stories about that place. But, but I will never forget, we had, a, we had a young man at this school, and he was 15. He couldn't have weighed more than 120 pounds soaking wet. But when this young man lost it, it took six of us to hold him down. Six of us. There were kids twice his size who had played football and, and terrorized people in their neighborhoods, but, but Artie took six men to hold him down. And, and it, it was a brutal situation. The, the, the power, the spiritual powers that are working in our world create situations that are profoundly self-destructive and other destructive as well. And what I've been asking God to enable us all to do is to relate to this man. He's completely separated from, from himself, from his loved ones, from his family, from the community, from the society. Can you imagine hearing this man screaming out in the middle of the night in torment? People trying to subdue him and control him and you can't do it. I must tell you, I, I have such a love for this man and such a pity for him. But I, I want to be able to relate to him. Because yes, his circumstances are tragic and severe and dramatic. But I want you to know that fundamentally, he's not in some separate category from any one of us in our desperate neediness before God. I mean, listen to what Ephesians 2 says. You, speaking of all of us, were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We cannot put anyone, even someone in these desperate, dramatic circumstances, in a different category of neediness and desperation for God to heal and restore and forgive. The man of the tombs is you. Is me. It's, it's all of us. Yes, the circumstances of his life, no doubt ways he opened himself up to the powers of darkness. No doubt circumstances that were out of his control having an effect on him. 
and then having a holistic effect on him. The spiritual realm is touching every part of who we are. Nothing is left untouched by the spiritual realm and potentially by the powers of darkness. And so we've got to realize that we're all in this situation. And we've got to realize that sin is always destructive, always. It separates us from ourselves. It separates us from other people. And most of all, it separates us from God. And we need restoration. We need reconciliation. We need God to move in and restore what we can never restore. Sin is always destructive. Listen to how one commentator put it. Even in life, this man is consigned to the land of the dead. There, wailing among the tombs, he wreaks havoc on himself day and night. Sin is pleasurable for a season. Walking away from God, giving in to the powers of darkness, has a pleasurable experience often associated with it. But it's temporary. And temporary can be decades. We can live in rejection of God for a long time and convince ourselves we've chosen the right path. But walking away from God is never the right path. It's always destructive, eternally destructive. And what we've got to realize, which is the point of this passage, is Jesus alone has the power and compassion to save you. Jesus, we keep seeing him move toward hurting people, desperate people, needy people, dark situations and circumstances, walking right into storms, walking right into funerals, walking right into graveyards with, with people who've been overtaken by demons. He walks right into it. And he heals. And he restores. And he forgives. And so Jesus is the one we look to that we all desperately need. We need Jesus. Listen to Ephesians 2. We, it, we were told in Ephesians 2 that we're all under the powers of darkness, but then what, look what he says. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Do you hear what a different circumstance Jesus brings us to? Out of the graveyard into heavenly places, seated with him at the right hand of God himself, the place of power and authority and the place of satisfied work on our behalf. He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus for by grace you've been saved through faith. It is not your own doing so that no one may boast and we become his workmanship. That's who we become in Christ, his workmanship. Oh, indeed, the wages of sin is death, and we're all under that, that, that curse, that punishment of our sin. But Jesus comes and sets us free. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so we have freedom now, and we have victory now, and we will have victory for eternity in Christ. And one day, Jesus is once and for all going to conquer the powers of darkness. Darkness. 
once and for all, he's going to do this. He's already delivered the decisive blow in the battle, but one day the battle will finally be over and all wars will cease and cancer will cease and sickness and he will wipe away every tear and the dead in Christ will rise. Death won't have the last word. Satan won't have the last word. Jesus will. He wins. Amen. So don't retreat. I mean, it, this is just amazing to me. Now, I purposely skipped over the pigs. Um, I, I don't even want to really talk about the pigs. I do think it's a symbol of something considered unclean in the Old Covenant that Jesus is casting away. And I, I do think this graveyard bringing life out of this dead man walking is a symbol of Jesus taking back his kingdom. But honestly, as I thought about the pigs, I thought about how often... Bible studies about this passage end up being all about the pigs. And I do think junior highlighting is important because this is a relative value here. But can I just speak to you as, as someone who teaches and preaches the Word of God? We as God's people can so easily get fixated on things that aren't the main point. And we will spend all our, the whole, the whole Bible study will get totally derailed. The grace group conversation get totally derailed about the pigs. And all these historical background interesting issues. And, and, we'll, and we'll actually start to demonstrate knowledge we've gained about pigs in the first century. And all these things that, that may be helpful, but they, they tend to derail us so easily. Let, let's make sure we're not missing the main point here. The main point is Jesus wins. The main point is we win with him when we trust him as our savior. And so let's, I must tell you, as, as a preacher, sometimes we'll, we'll make a, a sort of secondary, tertiary, marginal point, sometimes even in passing, and it's all people want to talk about. And I'm like, did you get the main point, though? Don't miss the main point. It's Jesus. Jesus wins. Let's not get fixated on, on things that, that are of far less value than the main point. And that's Jesus' power that we desperately need. We desperately think about the reactions in this passage to Jesus here. The demons want nothing to do with him, even though they know who he is. The people in the town, their response just mystifies me. Although I understand it better than I'd like to acknowledge. You would think that after seeing this man they were all aware of, be freed from this in his right mind, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed, healed, freed, forgiven, you'd think they'd say, Jesus, never leave. Jesus, stay here. I need that help too. I need that power too. Our whole community does. We're all in sin. We're all under the powers of darkness. Don't ever leave, Jesus. We need you. No, they, they, it says they're afraid. And that fear leads them to reject him and say, get out of here. We don't want you here. We don't want you messing up our lives. You've already put a dent in our economic stability by sending these pigs over the cliff. We don't want you messing up our lives anymore. And in a very way, real way, Jesus messes up our lives. He costs us all kinds of things the world says really matters. 
Maybe material prosperity. Maybe a job. Maybe friends. Maybe family members. Maybe your very life in this life will be required because you follow Jesus. I understand. Like I said, I, I think I get it more than I'd like to admit. If you don't recognize your desperate need for Jesus, and you see He may really mess up your life as you've arranged it to be, you're going to say, could you just get out of here? And we've got this idea that people are seeking after God and God's hiding Himself like, where's Waldo? No, God's been seeking and saving the lost since Adam and Eve rebelled. He's the great evangelist. He's the great missionary. I mean, when the Ardills head back soon, they're just acting like they're God. Reaching out to lost people, to needy people. When we seek to engage and evangelize, we're just acting like God. God's not hiding from us. He's been seeking us. We're the ones who push him away. We're the ones who reject him. We don't have this natural inclination to say, Jesus, stay. I know it may mean radical alternation and alteration to my life, but it's worth it to me because I'm desperately needy before you. If you don't realize you're needy, you're never going to go to Jesus looking for him to free you, to forgive you. And here's the amazing thing. Do you know how Jesus forgives us? By becoming the man of the tombs. Jesus goes into a tomb. Jesus subjects himself to punishment and crucifixion and is buried. Jesus becomes the man of the tombs. He doesn't save us from a distance. He saves us, but not just walking into a graveyard to free this man, but in the most ultimate way, he frees us by becoming a man who goes into a grave himself and is set free from that grave by the same power that vanquishes these demons here. Jesus becomes the man of the tombs. He walks into dark places to bring light, and the darkest place he ever walked was his own suffering and death and bearing the wrath of God for us. That's what Jesus does. He becomes the man of the tombs in our place. And why does he do this? Because he loves us. Not because we earned it or demonstrated how pretty we are or how successful or accomplished or competent we are. That's not what grace is. Grace is getting to the end of yourself and realizing that all you've got is God's kindness toward you when all you deserve is punishment. And when that's what grips your heart, you want to follow Jesus. You want to be close to him. You want to be intimate with him exactly like this man does. He says, Jesus, I need to go with you. And it's fascinating what Jesus says. He says, no, you've got a job to do. You can commune with me from a distance physically. But, but you need to stay here and you need to tell people what I've done for you, what God has done for you. And he proclaims Christ. That's God doing for him what he desperately needed. And that's our calling. Those who've been set free from our desperate, needy, hopeless, helpless condition. Well, we're like Jeremiah. It's like burning in our bones. We just have to tell people what Jesus has freed us from. Can you imagine this man ever forgetting Jesus? 
Can you imagine him ever forgetting what he'd been freed from? Reunited with his family, able to sit down for a simple meal at dinner again? Being able to leave a graveyard and rejoin society? I don't know what kind of pushback he must receive from people who wanted the one who saved him out of their territory. I bet it wasn't easy for him. But Jesus leaves him behind and he's faithful. We're told he proclaims what God had done for him. And that's so fundamental to what ministry is. That's what we're doing. We're all proclaiming the way God set us free from our desperate situation. That's what it means to be a Christian. Jesus took our place. Jesus went into the grave so we could walk out of the grave with resurrection bodies one day. No longer subject to the powers of darkness in this cursed and fallen world anymore. Death will be dead. The curse will be gone because Jesus became a curse for us. That's the best news in the world. There are going to be people up here, including myself, praying with people love to pray for you if you've never trusted christ please come up and pray with one of us if you need to engage in spiritual warfare at a deeper level and you're aware of that going on in your life please come up and receive prayer for that we want to pray with you and pray for you if you have questions just come up and we'll talk and ask questions and answer questions we'd love to talk let's pray lord help us we are a needy people desperately so and even though we can spend our lives trying to appear quite competent, quite self-sustaining and self-sufficient, we know that's just not true. We desperately need you. And we desperately need the weapons of warfare to engage the spiritual war that rages around us all the time. So would you make us a people more devoted to prayer and worship and the fellowship of the saints and the word than ever before? Lord, our days are growing darker and darker, it seems, all the time. So much for human progress. Lord, we need you to help us progress as salt and light in this increasingly dark world. And so, Lord, help us to be good soldiers. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.